politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen to the one and only CR podcast. Those of you looking to live and breathe free again, this is your source of information, strategy, and really your source to protect your own life. Um, it is Wednesday, December 15th, smack in the middle of the month. We only got a couple days left to broadcast this year. So uh, you will have to follow me on Rumble next week. Uh, Rumble, Twitter, uh, will be off all of next week and the following week. But again, I will still be working pretty much every day, just maybe a slightly slower pace because our lives are at stake. You know, the reason why I've spent so much time focusing on the science, the data, bringing on scientists. We're going to have, uh, hopefully, uh, if I can get a hold of him, Dr. Robert Malone coming up, uh, because it's not just the fascism, or part of the fascism really is. They are killing us, okay? The virus has killed a number of people. It was contrived. It was made. It was released. Even the UK Parliament now admits that. Um... And then this year, everything is much worse with the vaccine, not just dying of the vaccine, but the virus itself is much, much worse. And, you know, I'm just telling you guys, you got to make sure you have kits on hand, get this treated. It is uh, it is much harder to treat than it was last year. Last year was a piece of cake as long as you had some treatment. Now you really got to watch out. People are getting very sick from this. It is disgraceful that that almost not a single state Florida is inching into this, has used any of the funding we've used for fascism, for things that don't work, for things that are harmful, to explore and implement policies that actually do work and have you know people treat patients. Um, you know, a lot of you might have heard the media's throwing this everywhere, throwing this out all over the place. Oh, this guy in York, Pennsylvania, Keith Smith. You know, he they won a, a court case under Ralph Larigo, the lawyer. We've had him on the show a couple times. And uh, they, they won their chance to give ivermectin for a couple days, and the guy died. Well, what they don't tell you is that the guy already had multiple organ failure. He was on dialysis uh, because they were blocking it for months. Uh, and, and I could tell you, or weeks, I could tell you, uh, you know, that the doctor who prescribed ivermectin really made sure the wife understood that, you know, it was a Hail Mary. Um uh, ivermectin works very well in stopping a cytokine storm, the pulmonary inflammation, but if there's already organ failure, it cannot revive the dead. And it can't bring back an organ, uh, 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 a lung that had full fibrosis, a kidney that has failed. Um, so that, that is the big lie. They don't report on all the cases where even though people were on a ventilator and were going to die, but they didn't yet have organ damage, that's when it works. But the bigger point is, why did the guy get to that stage? He got to that stage because they refused to use it and fought them in court for weeks and those precious weeks. So that is not considered a victory because by the time they won the order, it was too late. That is the key information I want you guys to know. But the key is that every primary care physician should be treating this, should understand the potential for viral and bacterial pneumonia and how to get ahead of it and how to treat it when there's signs of it like they always have done until now. And we're going to continue to try to arm you with the best information to deal with that. Now, first, our sponsor today, 
we have enemies within our government, but the reason they're able to succeed is because we have enemies within the church. I want you guys to go to enemieswithinthechurch.com. This is a new film that is produced by Trevor Loudon on how the evangelical church, a lot of the establishment churches have been hijacked by social justice, critical race theory, uh, neo-Marxism, who's behind that. And to understand the way out of this trap, we need to understand how we fell into it. It exposes all the bad ideas, the bad actors, the bad money. Um, You'd be shocked who's funding these people. Again, go to enemieswithinthechurch.com, download the DVD or purchase the PPV streaming um, at enemieswithinthechurch.com. Send it to everyone you know involved in the church. So, you know, there's really a lot to get to, um, but I wanted to talk about the nature of this Omicron, what we're seeing, what we expect forward, um, you know, how the vaccine is creating antibody-dependent enhancement or at least some version of viral enhancement. So Dr. Malone, hopefully, uh, again, if I can get a hold of him, he will join us momentarily. But I wanted to go through just here a couple of points um, before we have him on, because I don't know what we're going to have time for. There's just so much going on, so so little time to fit this in. If you look, if there's one data point you take away from this that you have with you, I want you guys to remember, if you go to CDC's data table for daily death trends, so you could see deaths by, recorded deaths by day. It doesn't mean they died then, it means that's the day it was recorded, but you have an apples to apples comparison now since the beginning of the pandemic. And I simply took, I took their Excel spreadsheet and I tabulated the last three full months, September, October, November. So from September 1st through November 30th. Did you know that in the United States, there were 127,184 recorded COVID deaths during that period. That is 45% greater than the 87,829 recorded over the same period in 2020. And by the way, the num if anything, the number will probably grow as it for this year as it gets backfilled because CDC data it gets backfilled, but last year's data is already enshrined. So if anything, it's worse than that. But it's at least 45% higher. That that observation is devastating. Okay. Almost every senior is vaccinated. Overwhelming majority of adults in most places are vaccinated. Even a lot of uh, kids are now. And last year, we didn't have a single vaccine. We didn't have, you know, the monoclonal antibodies. We didn't have as many treatments. Um, To record that many deaths, you know, and we had less built-up immunity, is utterly insane. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. And you all know, I've been talking about this, I've been obsessing about this, because to me, this is the biggest genocide. We have known about leaky vaccine syndromes. It is well known. Um, Some of you might have seen the clips circulating on the internet, um, you know, from the Mark Zuckerberg interview with Fauci last March, when uh, Zuckerberg was pushing Fauci. Um, You know, why can't we just get a vaccine now? And if you remember back then, see, 
you might be asking me, well, why would Fauci throw cold water on a vaccine if that was his plan all along? Well, you have to understand back then he first had to induce the lockdowns. So, you know, when you tell people, oh, we'll have a vaccine, so you're not going to have a lot of fear. So you have to say, no, you know, we got a lockdown. There's, there's a lot of time. So he actually said if you vaccinate someone and they make an antibody response and then they get exposed and infected, does the response that you induce enhance the infection and make it worse? The only way you'll know that is if you do an extended study. Okay? This would not be the first time if it happened that a vaccine that looked good in initial safety actually made people worse. And then a month later at a press conference in April, I've played this clip before. I don't have it on me now. He said the worst thing you can do is create enhancement to actually give people the pathogen. And that's what it is. The rest is history. That is literally what we've been seeing. And it broke out in the United States right around July, that six-month marker of the vaccination when we knew it leaked. Okay? I mean, we saw it. We saw how bad it got. We saw how devastating it was. It is impossible that this is not what's happening because now we know it's leakier than we ever would have thought. We know it's more narrow, narrow spectrum than we ever would have thought. We know they carry at least the same viral load, if not more. So there's no question in my mind that the vaccine is not just to blame for all of the um, you know, crazy amount of deaths that we don't even know, but certainly the 19,000 recorded and all the injuries – and it's likely several hundred thousand when you factor in on the reporting. But the COVID deaths, the COVID deaths, I, I, I could tell you from being so involved in helping people get treatment, I literally have doctors calling me now, um, you know, and I'm calling them, you know, as I'm, as I'm recording this. And it's gotten a lot harder to treat. Now, generally speaking, most people we, we were able to take care of, but, you know, it, it has gotten exponentially worse. So when they say, oh, you know, when they like to say in some areas there's still some efficacy against hospitalization, yeah, it made it much worse on qualitatively it enhanced the virus and then offered some protection for those people who got it. That's the perfect way to screw people over. This is what we're seeing now. And again, nobody disagrees. Everyone, everyone agrees that the shots create much greater transmission than unvaccinated for the first month. Okay, that, that is proven. So the worst thing you can do is, you know, in a, in a place where it's circulating a lot, say, let's go and get more boosters, more shots. They are killing people from COVID by doing this. Imagine if all that money would have been put into the monoclonals, things like that. And by the way, by the way, you guys should go for the monoclonals. Even if you have ivermectin, you have the other stuff, um, you know, for my research, from what I've seen and heard from people, um, if you can finagle it and get in your area, if you're eligible or if you could push for it, go get it. You know, even if you feel fine, go get it. Get it early. Um, there's two. There's the Regeneron, and then there's the GSK, whatever Glaxon, uh, Smith Klein. Um, from what I've heard from doctors, the GSK is even better than Regeneron. But if you could, you know, at least get the Regeneron, that's fine. I try to ask for the GSK. Look, I mean. Unlike the other side, which is dogmatic, they refuse to look at anything else. Even though the monoclonals were created by Big Pharma, that's one thing that appears to work. And, you know, I'm, I'm all for that. I'm not going to dogmatically oppose it because it's, it's created by pharma. Uh, it, it appears to work. It's the only thing that does. It, the monoclonal antibodies is a known and proven technology for many years. Um, and it's even shown some efficacy against Ebola. 
So, uh, so yeah, definitely, definitely go and get that. Um, you know, so I just wanted to throw a couple other statistics at you in the remaining time here. Again, I do want to try to get Dr. Malone on. 15 to 17-year-olds. Again, I'm not I'm trying to make you guys panic. Uh, generally speaking, kids don't have a problem, but they've gotten a little sicker. Death is very, still very, very rare, but relative to before, it's, it's a lot more. There were 19 recorded deaths for 15 to 17-year-olds um, in January. That was the winter peak. That was when we had the most deaths, 19 recorded deaths, 15 to 17-year-olds. Now, again, 50% of them often are overstated, but you'll see I'm comparing apples to apples, you know, because um, you'll have the same overreporting now than then. In August, there were 63 of them. Okay, after they were eligible for the shots. Back then, none of them had the shot. It doesn't make any sense what we're seeing. Generally speaking, it mutates down, which is what we seem to be seeing with Omicron, and we're going to see what Dr. Malone thinks. Um, so you, you wouldn't have it get worse. It doesn't make any sense. Consider a couple of other facts. Cornell University is shutting down. They have an ironclad vaccine and mask mandate. Okay, so everyone there, by definition, there's 20,000 people, whatever, on their campus. You have to be vaccinated. Cornell, just last week alone, 3.5% of their entire campus tested positive for the virus. The NFL has a vaccine mandate. 52 of the 53 players for the LA Rams roster were vaccinated before the start of the season in September. They lead the league with 11. Okay, that's like a fifth of their players are on the COVID list. Newton, Massachusetts, has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world. 97% of the entire population is vaccinated, including 99% of 12 to 15-year-olds and 87% of 5 to 11-year-olds. They also have an indoor mask mandate. They have more cases than they had this time last year, and they're rapidly headed towards uh, you know breaking even and breaking the record from the peak in, uh, in January. South Korea probably has the highest vaccination rate for a country of 50 million. It's a pretty large country, 50, 51 million. Um, it's, it's about on par with Iceland, which has the highest in Europe, except Iceland's a very small country, a large country, and still they have such a high vaccination rate, pretty much every adult. They're now recording 100 deaths a day, more deaths and more cases by far than any time last year. And that's very telling because the Koreans, again, those Pacific Rim countries, they almost seem to have this impervious partial um, cross immunity. They really weren't dying from it. It's still nothing near what we're experiencing in the U.S. and Europe, but that's already, uh, again, what I'm saying is you have to compare apples to apples. I'm comparing not South Korea to America, but South Korea now to South Korea before they were all vaccinated. It doesn't make any sense. That's not normal. Again, already a few months ago, the you know the Harvard study we published, you know talked about the Harvard demographer. It was published in the European Journal of Epidemiology, where he looked at at all pretty much all of the three thousand counties in America, over sixty countries, and he could not find correlation um, between uh, vax rates and case rates. And if anything, he found the opposite. Quote, in fact, the trend line suggests a marginally positive association such that countries with higher percentage of population fully vaccinated have higher COVID-19 cases per 1 million people. This is insane. This is utterly insane. 
man, I, I barely scraped the surface, but I'd rather you hear from Dr. Malone. The interview today is sponsored by iTarget Pro. Um, for those of you who don't want to spend hundreds of dollars every time you expend ammo at the range, but you want to keep up your skills, laser bullets are really great technology. You buy this laser bullet, you go to itargetpro.com, you put in offer code CR, you get free shipping, 10% off. For about 100 bucks. you get a, a laser bullet, and you put in the caliber of your gun. You know They have 9mm, 45. They also have rifle, you know, 223 for your AR. And then they give you this board, and you download their app, and you shine the app, your phone, on the board, and you you literally shoot. I mean, you know, you make sure your gun is unloaded, no ammo around, put in the dummy bullet, point in a safe direction, obviously follow all the rules, and it renders your shots. You could practice your muscle memory, your trigger control, your five-point draw from your holster. It is a lot of fun. Um great way to practice without all the noise and, and expense. Again, that's the letter I, targetpro.com, itargetpro.com. Now, as promised, I do have on the line Dr. Robert Malone. He is the inventor of the mRNA vaccines and a scientist with specialties in virology, immunology, molecular biology. He's the chief medical officer of the Unity Project, a very important organization when you're talking about a time when we need alternative sources of medical and scientific information that actually follows the science. He's also president of the International Alliance of Physicians and uh, Medical Scientists. Uh, if you want to check out the website, it's globalcovidsummit.org. Um, he does that along with doctors Urso and Cole, who have been a great help to this program. If you want to know what is going on with Omicron, what's going on with Delta, where is this headed, where did this come from, um, what are some of the trends we're seeing with the shots? No better man to ask than Dr. Malone. Thank you so much for giving us the time today. Thanks for having me again, Daniel. It's always my pleasure. How can I help? Yep. Well, you could help with a lot. We have a lot of questions from our audience. People are very anxious. On the one hand, as, as I've rattled off the last 15 minutes, a bunch of statistics on how the virus seems to be worse than it's ever been, at least before Omicron. This year, we have so many more deaths um, from COVID and likely from the shots than we had last year. Uh, the UK just reported more cases than they've ever recorded ever before, even with such astronomically high vaccination rates. And then we have this new kid on the block that they're worrying about when, ironically, all the data seems to show that it's not really virulent, as virulent as the current one is. But on the other hand, the Vax does it not only doesn't work, but it seems like it has more of an affinity for it. And then it seems like it's kind of funny in terms of the mutations. What is your best working theory at this point as to where Omicron came from and how it started? So this is something that is being discussed really uh, avidly right now by in my world and I'm sure across the world, both with the vaccinologists and molecular virologists that count point mutations and in general. There's a lot of different theories floating around. If you do the phylogenetic tracking and projections for when this thing arose, because it is in such a different branch than all the currently circulating viruses, there's a school of thought that this is actually the prototype virus. And it was circulating uh, starting a few years ago. 
that's the problem with that hypothesis is that that's based on um, calculated projections of when this should have emerged from the parental lineage. And that's done using some assumptions about the rate of mutations, et cetera. So if you go straight off of the known mutation rate of the virus and the known rate of accumulation of mutations based on the current outbreak, the calculations lead you to conclude that this was circulating long before the virus outbreak. And so then you have to conclude, if that's, if that's uh, your working hypothesis, that this thing is uh, perhaps the prototype virus from whence the others derived. That's kind of hard to, to you know, square the circle on that one because that would presume that the virus had been circulating and had accumulated this uh, really dense uh, matrix of mutations in the receptor binding domain that would allow it to escape uh, antibody pressure caused by the vaccine. Now, there's another school of thought that this thing has just been percolating in AIDS patients that are immunosuppressed in Africa. Another school of thought is that it bounced from humans back into some host ungulate species. You'll remember that a lot of the deer, the white-tailed deer in North America, apparently infected. So then, it's then you could you could hypothesize that it would be bouncing between humans and some ungulate in Africa. Remember, this was first detected in Botswana and then bounce back into humans. That's another one. Uh, so AIDS, uh, a primordial virus or early progenitor virus, um, AIDS bouncing back and forth between different species. And then there is the, this sure looks like it was engineered um, hypothesis because it has all of these mutations and it seemed to arise out of nowhere. <clears throat> so once again, we're faced with the, this whole matrix of coulda, shoulda, woulda, I'm not sure what the heck happened, it doesn't make any sense, that uh, was what confronted us at the beginning of this outbreak. And uh, you'll recall, I'm sure, that uh, those who speculated that it could be an engineered virus, the prototypic Wuhan strain, were blacklisted um, and uh, you know painted as kooks by our good friends, the legacy media. And then all these documents came out and uh, now it's that's one of the leading hypotheses for the origin. So for Omicron, it's hard to figure it out. You've got, I think the best, the kindest thing I can say is that, or the, the most scientifically rigorous, that's a better way to put it, is that there are multiple working hypotheses and they range from uh, this, actually being the uh, prototypic virus to this being an engineered uh, pathogen uh, that was first detected in Botswana in four diplomats of uh, um, national affiliation undisclosed uh, by the president of Botswana. Um, so all of whom were vaccinated. So it's, it's just, I don't know what to say about how this thing arose but I think that those are the leading hypotheses right now. And personally, I think the, the assertion by many that this is a, um, actually an older virus that's come back, it's just hard for me to mentally wrap my 
itself around mm. that this thing because how could it replicate that quickly? It, it, that, that it's it, how how could it have been undetected if we see now that it transmits so quickly? I yeah, there's a whole bunch of this doesn't kind of make sense around that hypothesis, but it is increasingly mentioned. And it's and it's just coming out of this kind of computational algorithm approach to figuring out uh, genetic phylogeny and timelines. I think that that's a red herring and it's an artifact of the calculation system, and and that's that's not what's going on here. I agree with you. Uh, it is is clearly high, highly infectious. You know the the and the problem with the engineered pathogen version of the story is that it is appears to be so much less pathogenic. It causes seems, I mean, the big news out in the press, uh, breathlessly reported was that we've now identified one death in great Britain, I guess, that is attributed to being associated with Omicron in some way. Uh, you know, is it due to, uh, that virus or was the virus just there and somebody that died from another cause? I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but, but clearly, multiple reports are indicating that this is less pathogenic and more infectious. So the good news is that's not consistent. You know, Gert, Gert Benenbosch, who we all know about now, has been warning us of the prospect by vaccinating into an ongoing pandemic of America's disease-like phenomena where we would end up with a more infectious, more pathogenic virus. Sure. And... Uh, so the good news is that doesn't seem to follow. This doesn't seem to follow that trajectory. It follows the more typical um, of what happens when a virus enters a new host, which is that over time it tends to become less pathogenic and more infectious. And that seems to be what we have with Omicron. Now, what happens when you get that in in a outbred species like humans that have diverse immune systems and responses? That is the pathway by which you end up with herd immunity. Sure. So sure. This, this is looking mm. like it could be paradoxically good news. Good news, almost like a vaccine. I mean, almost, you know, and and but so that's why I'm kind of like uneasy. If this were all natural and we knew the the virus was natural, we weren't mass vaccinating with suboptimal pressure, we weren't doing all this stuff, I'd be dancing from the rooftops now. And, and indeed, a University of Hong Kong analysis just came out. Um, they claim that um, at 24 hours after infection, Omicron variant replicated around 70 times higher than Delta. But on the other hand, which kind of works together with it being less virulent, um, it replicated 10 times less efficiently in human lung tissue uh, than the original strain, which may suggest lower severity of disease. Oh, you but, just said something yeah. crucial, my friend. Mm. So that means that these high titers that are being generated, I infer, are happening in the uh, naso and oropharynx, in the in the upper respiratory mucosa. Is that what that study is showing? I don't know that study. That's that's that's, that's, a, that's actually exactly what they seem to be oh, saying. That, and and that, and Dr. Okay. Malone. Is that why we're seeing it more in the vaccinated? Okay, so you've just triggered something. With flu, uh, the, and there was actually gain-of-function research done at the CDC years ago with influenza and H1N1. And what they showed was that you can shift the pattern of influenza, vac- uh, influenza virus replication so that it uses more deep lung 
uh, receptors. It has to do with the receptor preference and receptor subtype so that you could, you could cause gain-of-function mutations in flu to cause it to infect deeper lung, and that was highly pathogenic. Whereas if the flu virus was infecting um, upper respiratory tissue, it was less pathogenic. And um, you could shift this around through point mutations. If what you're just reporting to me um, holds, then that could totally explain what we're seeing is that um, and, it, and it is precisely the, the vaccine, if we think about this as let's, let's imagine that this is a naturally occurring um, live attenuated vaccine for the sake of discussion. Um, live attenuated nasal vaccines for coronavirus is what has uh, been enabling for the veterinary coronavirus vaccines, which there are only a couple feline infectious peritonitis and bovine coronavirus. And both of those are live attenuated intranasal vaccines. They're selected for replication in the nose and the nasal mucosa. If that is what's happened here, that is huge. And it would totally explain the, uh, the biology of what we're observing, less pathogenic, more infectious, because it's probably, I, based on what you just said, I would predict that that once once they get into the weeds on this and look at the receptor binding, what they're going to find is that Omicron is is selectively binding more efficiently um, receptors in upper respiratory mucosa. That means it'll generate a really good mucosal immune response, the secretory IgA. Mm. And um, that would totally explain why it's less pathogenic, because it's not infecting deep lung. I think so you're you not going to get that pneumonia, precisely, which is what kills you. Exactly. So that that's why I kind of have this uneasy feeling. On the one hand, this almost looks like it doesn't belong. It's not a natural progression from the current var variants. But on the other hand, I don't know if someone screwed with it and meant to harm us with it like they've uh, probably been doing all along with some of these other um, you know, things they've done yeah. with the with the pandemic. But, you but know what? it almost looks good. It, 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 you know what? It, it, let's just take it, you know. For those that are so inclined, maybe this the hand of God. Who knows? But because it, to me, it's just bizarre when you have Delta, which you know, I, again, I just read off the statistics. We had forty five percent more deaths uh, the last three months of twenty twenty one. Been wicked. Yeah, it, it's been it, it's been hard to treat. You get to pulmonary much quicker. I mean, all the doctors I talk to, um, the the patients I've referred to, some of our some of your colleagues. And this thing, but but here's what I what I need the confidence from you to give our audience, and I want to be able to give good news today. I, one of my concerns is if you go back, and I remember you know the media cycle when this happened, the UK got Delta about four to six weeks earlier than the United States South. Um, this is more May, June than June, July, yep, August. You're right. I agree. And you look at those reports, and you see it all over the media. This is like a cold. It's, it, it looked very mild, and to this day, if you look at the UK data at the time, there was actually a huge decoupling um, of deaths 
and cases. And then, so we were all laughing it off and we're like, oh, this is Mueller's ratchet. This is what we expect. Gets a little bit more transmissible, especially in the households, but then gets less virulent. Then it comes to Florida and, and Texas and, and Arkansas. And we're like, what the heck? This was like Ebola spreading like a cold. It was insane. Could it be that, you know, could it be that this thing also could start off that way, but as it gets exposed to the suboptimal evolutionary pressure, it then does kind of react, get stronger, or was there something more unique about Delta that lent itself more to some sort of, um, you know, helping uh, binding antibodies rather than neutralizing antibodies? <laughs> okay, yeah, um, uh a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah, that that so um a whole landscape of uh multiple working hypotheses just just you just walked us through. Um and uh the data, the science isn't going to catch up to that for a while and part of the problem is that uh we don't have a decent animal model. And so the normal mm. way we would ask this would be rigorous step by step um, looking at what happens uh, when we infect animals with this variant versus that variant and doing the pathology and doing the immunohistochemistry and figuring out where the virus is replicating. Um, I, that may be in progress. I need to check with a buddy of mine that works at Tulane Primate, and he may have some insights into that, but the problem is that all the animal models are pretty poor. So normally what we would do with a good flu model like uh, ferrets, for instance, is we would ask these questions directly and we would be able to say, oh, yeah, this virus replicates more in deep lung. It could be that what you had with Delta was something that was replicating at higher levels in deep lung. And for sure, what we have with Omicron is something that is outcompeting Delta. We know that clearly. That's the data in the can on that one. And it's, it's clearly highly infectious it's clearly replicating at high levels. But if it's doing so in a different tissue target, if it's doing so in upper respiratory as opposed to deep lung, that would, it would totally account for the differences in the pathology and the differences in the infectivity. Because if you've got a lot more virus, deep lung virus, you know, the particle size for coughing and those kinds of things, and the efficiency of transmission is different. If it's up in the upper respiratory, then then it really does become more highly infectious. I I don't know what to say about Delta. Clearly, it's more pathogenic. Clearly, it's more infectious and replicates at higher level than uh, the preceding strains. Uh, and um, I haven't heard of any shifts in um, airway distribution, but... Um, I'm really excited about what you shared with me. I hope you send me that paper. Sure, yeah, and I'm going to send you that. And also, there's there's this University of Marseille paper that seemed to indicate that Delta, and, and this would be, you know, if we think God is smiling upon us with Omicron, it would have been the opposite with Delta, that it just happened to be that it had more of an affinity for the binding antibodies of the vaccine rather than neutralizing as opposed to the Wuhan strain. That's well, what well, they but, seem to indicate. Yeah, and, so that, and, that, and to that's me, getting towards the uh, enhanced um, disease 
expected enhanced disease. In other words, because you yeah. said we're not seeing that with Omicron, as uh, Vandenbosch was warning, but but what we have already seen, and 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 let's face it, in the United States, you know, still most people I know, I know some very sick people now, um, they're s- still getting the the current strain. And to me, I'm, I'm a very data-driven guy. I like to give people the most accurate information. I like not to get emotional. But sometimes when you get anecdotal evidence, sometimes it could rise to a level where it's even greater than data. And I think, you know, before July, I would, I would put July as the benchmark. I literally didn't know younger people that got pulmonary, that had their SATs dropping, that had problems. Um, and likewise, you, you, you threw one therapeutic at this thing and it was it, you were fine. Comes July, and I'm getting it to this week, to this day, I'm still on the phone with people and back and forth and calling Ryan Cole, and you have people in their 30s, left and right, that that really are not overweight, and, and, and they're getting their sats dropping, and, and, and when I read the Merrick's Chicken uh, um, article from, from Professor Reed at Penn State that he wrote in 2015, I'm like, Oh my gosh. I mean, this is leaky as hell. You can't say it's not leaky anymore. It certainly is very leaky vaccine, very narrow spectrum, only recognizes the the S protein. How could this not be happening? And I guess there's no way you could answer this scientifically, but I think we're all wondering what would have been after January had we not had these shots? Would we have seen this devastation of, of this year? Who knows? Well, I, I, uh, yeah, I can tell you, I don't know the answer to that because it's an untestable. <clears throat> but I guarantee that there will be a, a round of backslapping and self-congratulation among bureaucrats and uh, Pfizer-aligned um, uh, individuals, uh, no matter the outcome, if, if, if we see a tapering in this disease in the next few months because of Omicron or otherwise. Um, sure, you know, sure. We're, but, it, but it might we're, be we're in the opposite gonna, way. We're gonna, never going to get to the bottom. You're Now, <clears throat> I guess what you're raising is the prospect that um, we may see kind of a biphasic or multiphasic um, spectrum of disease with this thing. As it moves through the population, it may acquire additional um, characteristics. Uh, and And that is probably the case, that it will. But what happens with these viruses is if they change their receptor utilization profile, they tend to stick to that. And especially mm. if they're getting an adaptive benefit in terms of replication. I, I'm, I'm seriously really excited about what you just shared with me because it may, it, for my mind, based on what I've seen over the years with flu, um, it, it may suggest that we there's light at the end of the tunnel. I'll just, I don't want to get overly, you know, I need to curb my enthusiasm, but, but if not for the vaccine, I would say for sure, that's what's going to happen. It's just, we're a little bit uneasy. Um, I could read to you, if you've not seen this from the Danish Omicron data, they now have, um, you know, I guess based on sampling, how, uh, what percentage of people have gotten Omicron. So among the cases, it's, 8% in triple vaccinated. In other words, among the triple vaccinated, 8% have Omicron, 5.5 among double, and only 1.2 of the percentage of the cases, COVID cases among the unvaccinated, are Omicron. Very interesting. And we, and this pattern so, seems to so hold I'm up in South the, Africa. I'm, I'm looking at the Danish data, 
right now, uh, twenty four seventy one cases as of twelve December. Is that the data you're looking at? Yep. Um, so nine point five percent have been boosted. Seventy four point six have two doses of jab of vaccine. Two point four have a single dose, and thirteen and a half is in the unvaccinated. Um, so if that's the data we're looking at. Um, you know, we can conclude that Omicron is blowing through the jab for sure. Um, the one of the problems we have with these data, because this so I posted this earlier today and then there was uh, all kinds of chitter chatter about this is, you know, people actually actually I think it came out was posted 23 hours ago Um one of the concerns is that Omicron is so mild that uh, you you may have some selection bias in uh, reporting of these infection rates. Mm. Uh, uh, and so there's just this is another case like with what we see again and again where people discount the bearers data. Because they say, "Oh, that's all spontaneously." You know, anybody can write it. Well, that's kind of so. Not so so really. you're you're saying that that when they're saying, even in the countries that appear to have a lot more of it, like Denmark, it's already registering as a percentage, albeit it's low. It's five percent. It's six percent of cases in a given cohort. You're saying, are you saying that it could be really more? It's just because a lot of people think it's a cold, they're not even recording it. Precisely. And so, mm. how can we can't that in these Danish data? You know, on their face, uh, they raise the concern that we may be seeing signs of vaccine enhancement. But um, I think we need to go slow on that because there is a risk that what we're observing is um, bias in the data and confounding variables that are uncontrolled having to do with the reporting rate. Because that what yep. we're talking about is is clinical cases of the virus that have been identified. Now, it could be that what we're seeing is, um, as you're suggesting, I think possibly, is that the, for some reason, the cases in the vaccinated are, are for some reason causing some over-reporting bias or, are, or alternatively could be more clinically significant, so they would be reported more often. Um, sure. Uh, I think so. Th- I so think those common what, founders. Yeah, we we have to be conservative, uh, uh, or um, we risk that we're playing into the fear porn ourselves, right? Um, but but I think we can definitively say that Omicron uh, is able to escape uh, both doubly vaccinated and triply vaccinated, which is a direct contradiction, as you'll recall, to what Pfizer's CEO had said. And then Joe Biden repeated, you know, it's how many days ago, four or five. Um, so that that's that's what I take away from these Danish data is, is um, best to stay um, at the 40,000 foot level and focus on the big, big picture and be a little cautious about dissecting it too much for these exactly. issues about uh, um, enhanced pathogenicity with the virus because of these confounding variables. It'll come out, uh, but, but I think it's still a little early. Um, and it's gonna, take, it's gonna take some people that are really committed to uh, 
you know, running the statistics properly and correcting for confounders to the extent that they can. Um, so, you know, that, that will take some time. Um, no, absolutely. And obviously, this is still very fluid, but I want to give people, you know, just a snapshot picture of what we're seeing. And, and it does appear that it's mainly in vaccinated people, which is kind of bizarre. But then again, it doesn't necessarily mean enhancement. It could be mild for everyone. And we certainly hope so. Um, and, what, and, just, and that, just, and that yeah. the people that are vaccinated are somehow more have have some more higher predisposition to reporting. You know, because they, for instance, yes. it could be that they feel like a cultural thing. They, yeah, or they were bomb proof. You know, or or uh, and then so if they get infected, then they're they feel like this is a uh, a significant um, you know unexpected finding, and they want to report it. I just I don't know. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of cultural things going on. Because what what concerns me from a public policy standpoint is that the the in, until Omicron with Delta, the you know the pro mass vaccination crowd had a really good narrative, and you know because the the virus clearly got more pathogenic, it was harder to treat. We were losing people younger, and they were able to point see see. And, and it was bizarre because you were the first to teach me about ADE. And I, and I looked at what was going on. It was, it was funny because we weren't seeing traditional ADE where until now the vaccinated were qualitatively getting it worse. There was evidence that they might be getting it and po- possibly spreading it at higher rates. Some of the UK data seemed to indicate that perhaps. But certainly in terms of the hospitalizations and deaths, while too many of them were dying and they weren't really reporting it, it definitely wasn't as many as the unvaccinated. And to me, rather than ADE, it literally looked like the Merrick's chicken uh, paradigm where, you know, a bunch of chickens got vaccinated and they just hosed the heck out of the unvaccinated chickens who probably wouldn't have been as bad off without that had those other chickens not gotten it um, because it offered them a certain prophylactic protection, but then they were able to really run up the score on the viral load and blast them. That almost seems like it's what happened. And then they got to turn around and say, look, look, see, if you were vaccinated, you, uh, you wouldn't have died. But in reality, it could be we wouldn't have had such virulence without it. That's really my concern. I felt like they got a really good talking point from what has played out so far with Delta. So um, it could be that Omicron has really saved us from ourselves, that we were in a evolutionary loop that might have been more consistent with what Gert has been warning us about. And then for whatever reason, this thing has come along and it's able to displace, outcompete uh, the circulating delta. And and it isn't it because it's shifted its uh, tissue trophism, its targeting. Um, it's out competing, but not getting into that loop of increased pathogenicity. We generally handle um, respiratory viruses like rhinoviruses that are uh, upper respiratory tract. We we generally handle them pretty well um, as a species. Uh, so. It could be that what we had was that Delta had um, uh, developed um, a profile of mutations that was leading it down an evolutionary path that would have had a bad outcome, and it was starting to move in that direction. You know, that's consistent with what you're saying, 
this observation that at first we thought, well, it wasn't so bad. And then as time went by, um, it got worse. We've got to remember in the UK also, they had these two other strains, you know, sometimes we call them Delta Plus. Mm. It became the dominant strain in a substrain within the UK. And in the US, up until recently, it was only about 10 to 15% of the total Delta circulating. That was the one that I've been worried about was this uh, this variant that was in the UK that we were calling Delta Plus here in the States, and yet it didn't seem to be competing in the United States in the same way that it was competing in the UK. And it wasn't it wasn't displacing the the let's say older school Delta um, in the same way. Now I'm I'm we're we're now out on the edge of my knowledge space there there this is this issue of of viral subspecies or or subtypes competing in in the u.s or or other geographic populations is um uh the the domain of folks that are specialists that they just track this stuff but i've talked to some of them and and so it could be that what you were observing with this shift in the UK pathogenicity related to these other substrain um, yep. isolates that, that for some reason, and no one seems to be the people that I've talked to, no one really seemed to be account able to account for why it swept through and dominated in the UK in the way that it did and didn't in the United States. And they were using some hand waving things like, Oh, it was a founder effect, um, which I just never found very satisfying. But, yeah, yeah, this notion that, oh, it originated there, so it just somehow has, like, home field advantage, like, in sports. It just, yeah. yeah. Um, or or that, you know, it came because uh, a whole plane load. I mean, the way you'd have to think about founder effect is, is um, I'm going to pick on the gypsies. Let's imagine that there's a whole, you know, plane load or truckload of gypsies that landed in London, um, and and the strain that they happen to be carrying among them then then you know gave a super big dose into london and it spread like wildfire you'd have to imagine something like that how would a large um inoculum if you're going to talk about a founder effect come into a country and and spread so that it dominated the virus in the whole island i don't know um i'm and sure. don't don't you know pick at me because i i just use those terms that the gypsy population is in europe is is uh um, a hot topic, and I probably shouldn't have said that. But um, no, but, but I, see, the, I see what you're saying. I mean, it it just goes to show that just how sophomoric it is to try to say, oh, it's this or it's that, or you wore the mask, really or you did this, or you had yeah th- this <laughs> policy. There, there's so many reasons we just don't know what spreads where. Um, we're almost out of time. And I did want to get to some of the uh, concerns about the vaccine safety, but one other question about you know, just the trajectory of this. So obviously um, natural immunity is what gives you, or from prior infection, what gives you the herd immunity. How concerned are you from the, about this observation from the week 42 uh, COVID surveillance report from the UK? This was late October, where they seem to observe that from their surveillance data that N antibody levels appear to be lower in individuals who acquire infection following two doses of vaccination are you concerned that the vac if we continue just mass vaccinating third four shots more people more kids everyone 
that we could possibly slide back the benefits of natural immunity? The answer is yes. Um, and uh, darn this this so I've been this has been my uh, personal little gripe. Uh, and I facetiously refer to this as the give a three year old a hammer every becomes a male. Um, the 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 logic that more is better with vaccination is not valid. Uh, there's two kinds of phenomena that happen with uh, repeated vaccination. One is high zone tolerance. So with in this case, repeated vaccination with a mismatched strain. So one is high zone tolerance. So this is the thing like you want to uh, that you go to the rheumatologist to get your child uh, um, to overcome their seasonal allergies. They do antigen testing, then they give them multiple shots with a antigen and it causes them to stop reacting. That's shutting down T cell responses and T memory cells through high zone tolerance. That's how that works. And so the logic we could just jab our way out of this potentially fails on that account. The second one is the logic of original antigenic sin. What we're doing is boosting and boosting a population of effector B and T cells that are mismatched for the current vaccine. So that means that they're going to be generating antibodies and T lymphocytes, effector cells, that are going to be um, inadequate to shut down the new circulating strain and potentially could be enhancing. So that's, that's in that there's a whole school of thought that this is why the efficacy of the influenza vaccines, the annual influenza vaccines has been dropping year after year after year, is that we're basically driving an original antigenic sin type response to flu vaccines so that we're always behind the curve and we're not allowing, you know, there's the, there's the underlying logic is that we're so smart and we understand vaccinology and immunology so well that we can get in there and tinker with it and uh, make it better. I, I, I think that that's a little arrogant. I think mm. that we have to be really cautious and, and recognize the limits of our, our knowledge, our comprehension. The immune system and is it, really complex. And we're going. And this in is there. coming from someone who spent, you know, you spent a good part of your career working on vaccines. But it's like anything in life; you can't overindulge any one strategy. It has its time and place, and, and, and when it's made properly. Um, but this notion that you could keep priming the pump, because my concern is that they'll start detecting reinfections. They'll say, "See, look, you know, a natural immunity doesn't work." And and really, I could just say anecdotally from people I know. Um, the only reinfections I know people got it twice actually did get the shots. Now it, it was very mild the second and that, time. And that's the case with me, right? I'm a case study in exactly what you just said. Wait, you I had was, the virus twice? I had the virus twice, and I was originally infected in the end of February of 2020. Remember, with the Biogen outbreak, and then I got the jab, uh, Moderna times two. I had those strong adverse events, including hypertension to 230. That's a known uh, consequence side effect that is more prominent in the um, naturally immune that then take the jab. And then um, about a month ago, I got Delta. And uh, the good wow. news is that I handled it pretty well. As soon as I felt it going into my lungs, 
I started with, in, in my case, I could not get a local pharmacy to fill hydroxy and ivermectin. So I went with aspirin and, and famotidine, which is the kind of the stuff that I pioneered. Um, yep. and, uh, and I shook it at about four days. And I was antigen testing through that using the rapid test. Um, my wife, it hit her a little bit harder, but I know that she didn't get a good antibody response um, from her first infection. Um, so so I'm, I, I share your concern, as does, and I think Ryan Cole and others, that we're seeing a, we, we appear to be seeing a, at least short-term immunosuppression from uh, the jab, which may make individuals more susceptible to infection during that period of time, both from this virus and from other viruses or pathogens. Uh, we don't know how long that persists, but that would make sense out of the reactivation of the latent DNA viruses. So this is the shingles, et cetera. It, in you know, the other line of, of data around that is the uh, evidence of toll-like receptor alterations after getting the jab. So that's T-cell signaling. And then there is the anecdotal still um, observation of, of uterine cancer spikes in populations that are too young, they shouldn't be having it, or sudden acceleration of severity and perhaps some other cancers. And the problem with all that is that it's really subject to selection bias. You know, it could be that we're seeing things, patterns in the data, because we're just sensitive to looking for patterns in the data, and it may not actually be there. So, sure. but there is a, a bunch of, of kind of soft, squishy indicators that there's something going on with the jab um, and, and immunosuppression, and it may be shorter term or it may be persistent we just don't know so that and, and i the, think now is now is a good time we're, we're almost out of time we just got a couple more minutes here um this has been very engaging as always so you're, you're the chief medical officer of the unity project and people could find it at unityprojectonline.com um, along with peter mccullough and and some other other prominent doctors you're working uh, to 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 fight the push to to jab all of our, our children, which is just totally senseless in terms of a risk benefit analysis. Of all the things we're seeing, um, this requires its own show. But I'm just going to leave it at this: for all the things we're seeing, whether it's the neurological things, the hematological concerns, the myocarditis. We're seeing these just random safety signals that really do not pretend good news. A lot of excess mortality in some places we shouldn't be seeing it, and among certain demographics for which we shouldn't be seeing it. What is the concern about this shot that most keeps you up at night? Um, particularly for the children, I think the two primary ones are the, um, you know, Maddie DeGarry uh, kind of, of – brain and central nervous system as well as peripheral nervous system problems that may occur more frequently in, in young girls. But the, there's this push to kind of downplay the myocarditis. Myocarditis in general does not have a long-term um, outcome uh, that is particularly favorable. Um, we total, we're totally ignorant about the reproductive system consequences. Uh, and 
And then there's this, like we were just talking about, this kind of um, loose cannon on deck about immune system changes that the vaccines seem to be triggering. So it's all of those. One thing that that is longer term uh, risk that is just very, very poorly characterized, but is is the reproductive risks. And there just mm. doesn't seem to be um, any interest in in tracking that carefully. The FDA didn't require that those studies be done before they were before we moved into the clinic with this. I mean, there's just this long history in medicine of uh, we thought everything was good. Thalidomide, of course, is the um, the boogeyman, uh, the 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 um, you know rare event that proves the rule. Uh, to, to assume that that this is all safe and and hunky dory is is just naive. It's it's not been how we've proceeded in the past. So, so those are the the things. But you know, if it was if it was my grandchild, uh, um, I I think that the that the vector sum of all of this would lead me to advise my children, don't jab your kids. Uh, it's just we just don't know enough right now, and the logic. That, well, we're not going to understand what the risks are to children until we start large-scale vaccination. That's just wrong. We've never done that before. We always do things carefully and incrementally. Uh, and the way that we would normally do this, in, a, in you know, uh, in, in my experience, in my training, is we would start with high-risk children. We would vaccinate them. We would do it carefully. We would do good clinical controlled studies. We would see how it goes with them. And then we might start a small trial in healthy, normal children. But this, uh, you know, let's just go ahead and test it and see what happens approach. And, it, you know, as if that's not bad enough, that we're going to just mandate that that all our children yep. get the jab. Um, that's I, I, I don't know. It, it, I, I'm speechless. It is yes. so far beyond the pale and it's become, it's like the, the politicians that are advocating this are just completely dug in. Completely um, dug in. And, and, and if you could really quickly, a lot of people are confused about information. Some people say it's misinformation. What was and was not done in terms of the animal trials on these vaccines for studying reproductive issues? A very limited uh, reproductive toxicology study was done in a in rodents in a non-good laboratory practice environment. I don't know what's in the current um, Pfizer dossier, but we're not going to get to see that apparently for 75 years if they have their way. Um, but going back to the preclinical studies that were done to justify the emergency use authorization, remember we got that um, from because of Byron Bridal from the Japanese regulatory authority, which, by the way, the Japanese, as you know, aren't mandating these jabs. Yes. Uh, and, um, uh, and those clearly showed that the FDA uh, um, allowed Pfizer to get by by cobbling together data that they had generated with other mRNAs for other purposes um, that was done in a non- good laboratory practice environment and uh 
and they they seem to think that that was okay and then then we know that that the answers are still not there because what the FDA said in their dossier for commodity is well if you we're going to grant you this license but as soon as you start marketing it you have to do a bunch of studies and those studies included pediatric safety reproductive uh, toxicology birth defects um, and uh, so you know Pfizer apparently decided together with BioNTech oh well we don't want to do this study so we're just not going to market commodity in the United States we're only going to carry forward with the EUA and and I don't know how else to explain the fact that they were given authorization to go ahead and proceed and to be licensed and yet they choose not to 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 do that and to continue to sell the government um, the EUA product but not the licensed product it's, it's very it. interesting to also note that you talk about the Japanese documents. That's also where we have the biodistribution study that seems to indicate the lipid nanoparticles deposit very heavily in the, in ovaries. the ovaries. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. The Japanese seem to be getting a hold of it, and and their statement was pretty strong. Um, in fact, you wonder, you know, with a statement like that, typically you would pull the vaccines, but I guess no country has the guts to do that. Um, but they seem to indicate, yes, there are certainly problems, and there's problems with the myocarditis. Um, no one wants to talk about the reproductive stuff, but uh, I'm not a doctor, but all I know is uh, this menstrual irregularity business does not seem normal. It's, it's widespread. so widespread. Yeah, I know so many people in my life, and it's not like people – readily talk about that but yeah you know i think the university of chicago solicited five thousand people for a study they got over one hundred thirty thousand submissions um yeah. I, to me it's and, it's, and it's the fda yeah I, I i i think one thing any objective outside viewer looking in at this has to conclude that the fda is compromised uh i i just don't know any other explanation that fits all the data um, the, Look, the fact and, 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 and I'm sure you watched the the, the, the Molnupiravir uh, committee meeting, the FDA uh, you know, biomedical committee hearing. I mean, they openly admitted it's mutagenic and it's unsafe and we don't even think it's that effective. And uh, it's we're mixed and we'll probably have to come back and revisit this. But then they did it anyway. And yeah. it's almost like, you know, there's no request from pfizer or merck that they will turn down there is that is what is so scary no matter what and and i think states really need to backfill the the regulatory safety net and states need to start coming and taking over but we're out of time here dr malone uh, again you could check out unityprojectonline.com or globalcovidsummit.org a lot of good information there uh, dr malone keep up your good work and we really look forward to hearing from you again and daniel keep Send me that paper. I mean, you're on fire. Just emailed I'm, it to you. <laughs> I'm pumped. Thank you so much for having me on. Take care. God bless. So, so again, that was Robert Malone, um, a guy that spent most of his life developing vaccines, including the mRNA technology. Remember, it wasn't designed originally by him to be used for a spike protein, which is toxic, um, among many other problems with this shot. And I think what you heard was, you know, it was interesting, a lot of humility, you know, unlike these other guys, it's not like he he doesn't come out and talk like me. I'm a political guy. He's going to be very precise. Look, that, that looks like a concern. We can't prove that yet. And, you know, he just wants that. That's what following the science is. A guy like that. Um, what you hear from everyone else is not. 
But I am, you know, kind of intrigued that he certainly was pretty favorable on some of my theories about, you know, the enhancement of, of Delta and how likely it probably wasn't always inevitable that Delta was going to be that way without the shots. Um, this started by a man-made evil, evil plot. Could it be that God, you know, is 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 gonna finally bail us out, even though we're not worthy of his of his kindness? Could it be that they tried to manipulate this and maybe they tried to make this as an extremely transmissible and pathogenic, uh, you know, strain, but it, it didn't work and it backfired? Uh, could that be what, what we're seeing? I hope so. The data so far seem to indicate upper respiratory. Um, again, uh, it's I, I didn't realize he didn't know that Hong Kong study. I wouldn't have surprised him with it. And, and then also, it's interesting that um, I didn't know that Dr. Malone himself I know he had the Moderna shots, um, you know, because back then he thought he's on the older side. He didn't think he, you know, he had concerns. He didn't think it was that bad. So you see, he really came into this with an open mind, just so you know. And he got it again. He got the virus again. And what he was describing, you know, was mild for him. He's a little bit more for his wife. I, I think they both had the shots. I'm pretty sure. Um, that's not good. And it's funny. He himself couldn't get a hold of ivermectin. I wish I would have known. I mean, this guy is like one of the most famous virologists around. He couldn't get a hold of ivermectin. Uh, he should have gone to 7cells.com, promo code Daniel. Um, they also have treatment packages that come with nidazoxanide as well, as long as, as well as methylprednisolone and, and um, azithromycin. I will tell you what we're seeing with this variant, very important, is that you need azithromycin from day one with the ivermectin. A lot of people... Um, are getting bacterial pneumonia. And this is the easiest thing to treat, but you got to treat it. In other words, bacterial pneumonia is not as bad as the cytokine storm, but, you know, it could be bad. A lot of people in the Spanish flu died from that. You know, if you remember when I had Brian Tyson on, doctors treated 8,000 patients. I, I asked him, how did, how did he get into this? And the first thing he said is, look, I don't know how to treat a virus yet. I mean, this was back in February of, of 2020. But what we do know is that in the Spanish flu, a lot of people got, you know, they're always like, oh, it's a virus. Antibiotics don't work. It's stupid because it often spawns a bacterial infection. And what you're seeing is there is a risk of people that they'll take the ivermectin. It does its job. They do fine. They look like they have nothing. And then it comes back around on week two as post-viral bacterial pneumonia. So it is important to get azithromycin um, you want to get on antibiotics. You know, I would say everyone, I, I, even kids, you know, we, we use ZPAC for everything. Uh, you know, we use it when we suspect you're going to have bronchitis or pneumonia. This has such a uh, proclivity to spawn various forms of pneumonia, including bacterial pneumonia. Um, you know, all the doctors I speak to, Dr. Henson recommends it. Um, everyone should be getting that. The steroid you don't want to do from day one. You only want to have it on hand if you do start to get pulmonary. But the the antibiotic, it is criminal how they're not even giving people antibiotics and, and people can't find doctors for that. Um, th this is terrible. The, the, the genocide of blocking treatment. Um, if every primary care physician would be like Dr. Henson, almost nobody would have died. Almost nobody would have been in the hospital. Um, and frankly, if, had we not had the shots, I don't think we would have had this entire wave. It's going to be very hard, and it's going to take a long time to prove that. Um, again, I promise to give you more information, longer shows this week, because we are going to be out next week. But we will be back for the next two days. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.